Dr. Josh Lospinozzo is the co-founder and CEO of Shift5. Josh is an entrepreneur with deep expertise in cybersecurity, data science, and system software engineering. Prior to Shift5, he co-founded Red Owl Analytics, an insider threat detection platform acquired by Raytheon Forcepoint in 2017. Additionally, Josh served for a decade as a cyber officer leading teams to build dozens of elite hacking tools for the National Security Agency's Tailored Access Operations, Army Cyber Command, and the Cyber National Mission Force. Josh is the author of C++ Crash Course, No Starch Press 2019, author of dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles spanning multiple disciplines, and he holds multiple patents. Josh earned a Bachelor of Science in Economics and Operations Research from the United States Military Academy and a PhD in Statistics from the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Josh, welcome to Frontline Founders, a podcast series that showcases military veterans who've gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies. Thanks so much for having me on, Rennie. Thank you, Josh. Let's start with what you, Josh, do today as the CEO of Shift5 and what Shift5 does in your own words. Sure. Um, well, Shift5 is a cybersecurity startup protecting planes, trains, and tanks from cyber attack. Um, and uh, my job as a CEO has evolved a lot over the past 12 months. Uh, and uh, assuredly, if you'll ask me the question in 12 months, it will probably evolve a lot from uh, what my answer is today. But um, currently, my job is uh, really resolves down to three things. Um, one is setting the strategic direction of the company and making sure that uh, my executive team, uh, my managers are aligned with that strategy and are working towards uh, achieving those strategic goals. Uh, the second thing is filling that team um, with the best talent that I can. So, so recruiting and, and building the team uh, that's going to execute on the strategy. And third is, um, you know, this will manifest itself in, in different ways based on uh, whether companies are venture backed or bootstrapped, but uh, really is making sure that there's money in the bank, that the, the, the company is, is well-resourced and financed. Um, in our case, that is with venture financing. Um, and that we're aligning the expenditure of company resources with strategic goals and that I'm feeding the company the capital it needs to, to grow rapidly. Now, 12 months ago, the answer was uh, uh, drinking Red Bull and uh, com committing code uh, into our uh, source repository to, to build the product and then um, you know, selling it to customers. So <laughs> who knows where I'll be in, in 12 months from now. Right, right. Josh, that is... Uh... That, that is a great point about the, the ever-changing role of a founder um, and, and in your case, a, a CEO. And uh, congratulations on, on all the, the progress that, that you and, and, and the team have made over Thank the you. last couple of years and, and your own ability to, to scale up as, as a tech founder, which we'll, we'll explore in more depth as we come back around to, the, to, to Shift 5. Let's get really started, though, by talking through some of your military experience before um, before becoming an entrepreneur and and sure. Josh you're you are unique in that you you uh, you you co-founded you founded a company um, 
very early in, in, in your career, uh, right as your army service was getting going. So we'll come to that. But but let's start right now, Josh, with take us back to the beginning of, of, of the journey, um, you know, maybe a bit on where you grew up and that that call to serve. What brought you to uh, to to go to, to West Point, the United States Military Academy? Yeah, I, so I grew up in, um, in North Central New Jersey. Um, went to public school all my life. Uh, had a really, you know, really nice upbringing in in a, a suburban area of New Jersey that's actually quite beautiful. Despite um, I think most people's exposure to New Jersey is on the on the turnpike. Um, I, you know, my dad was um, really hardworking small business owner, which made made an indelible impact on me. You know, he ran a small HVAC contracting company for for most of his life, uh, about you know ten people, and um, you know, sort of owner operator worked very very hard. My mother um, uh, stayed uh, home to take care of um, me and my my sister. My younger sister is uh, two years younger than than me. Um, and, you know, just, just had a really, uh, really stable, loving, um, uh, upbringing. And, you know, I think the, the sort of blue collar ethos of working hard, uh, for what you have and being smart with money has, um, been a through line in my life. And, you know, I credit, uh, my parents for instilling in me the, the value of a day's, uh, you know, a, a, a hard day's work. Um, I, uh, was a freshman in high school when, um, the attacks uh, against our nation happened on September 11th, 2001, and mm-hmm. being proximate to New York City, um, you know, Rennie, I know you you lived in New York City for for a big part of your life. It, of course, those attacks had um, you know profound impacts on the nation and the world at large. But I think they were particularly a- acute and tangible. Uh, for for people that live, um, you know, within uh, commuting distance of of you know what what I used to call the city when I grew up, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's still the best city in the world. <laughs> um, I you know I had friends uh, and family who um, lost people in those attacks. Um, I mean, this you know I, I visited the World Trade Center many times uh, as a kid, so. You know, there was a visceral um, connection I had with 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 that uh, aggression, and I think anybody who grew up in that area at that time um, felt the same thing. We answered that those feelings in different ways, though, and so some some folks uh, answer the call to service in a very direct way, uh, as I did, uh, and others, you know, sort of crafted a life of service or ways of. Um, giving back to the nation and in other ways. I uh, resolved when I was a freshman in high school that I was going to join the military, which, um, you know, in many parts of the country, that's a, a very standard thing to do. You know, you, you sort of have friends and family who've joined the military. It's a very familiar profession. Uh, that wasn't really the case where I grew up in New Jersey. It was uh, viewed as an extremely unusual choice to, to join the military. And I know, Rennie, you, you, you share a lot of uh, a lot of that when you when you joined the Marines, given uh, where you grew up and the contexts that that that, that you found yourself. But I felt just uh, uh, this inexorable pull towards um, towards mm. joining the military. My, my grandparents, uh, my both my grandfathers had served uh, one in the uh, in the Seabees in the Navy um, mm. uh, after after World War II, and then another uh, as a United States Marine. Hoorah! Um, and uh, I I um, you know so. I actually uh, was so convinced uh, of my my path. Uh, I had found out uh, that at the service academies, 
you know, West Point was about an hour, hour and 15 minutes north of where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a program for folks that are uh, enlisted, you know, uh, in, in, in the military to uh, join the service academy. Uh, there's a special sort of set aside every year of 50 or so slots uh, where enlisted folks, as long as you, you know, sort of meet the academic requirements and you're not married, you don't have children, um, you, uh, you, you compete in a special pool. And, and typically those those slots aren't filled. I was so convinced of my call to service and and what I wanted to do for the first part of my life. I enlisted in the army uh, as a junior in high school uh, and went to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, for for the uh, best best uh, two month summer camp uh, a boy could dream dream of, uh, learning how to be a United States infantryman. Um, and, uh, and, and graduated there. Uh, and when I did, my parents delivered to me an acceptance letter from, uh, from, from West Point. They'd found out, uh, two or three weeks before I was graduating, uh, basic training that I had gotten into West Point. So it was, uh, the only college that I applied for. Um, I was so, so determined and sure, um, that I wanted to spend at least a good portion of my life serving, uh, the, the nation that, um, had given me so much. So, that was really my entree into uh, into the service academy. I know it was a pretty um, uh, acute and unusual uh, path, but I think it's emblematic of the ethos of a lot of a lot of people that um, uh, that that grew up during the the era that that I did. Yes, and 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 the timing of this has has so much impact for for those of us who were in um, high school and, and and college when when the nine eleven attacks hit. It really was this transition point from the era in which we grew up post cold war uh the the 1990s the the quote unquote then end of history the peace dividend and yeah <clears throat> the peace dividend right and uh and you know 20 years on from 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 911 um those were uh it 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 did have a a profound impact on 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 many of us Josh what was West Point like for you and how did those years evolve and then turn into continued education as a army officer as opposed to going right into an operational unit? Yeah, I mean, when I reflect back on it, um, I mean, West Point has truly given me everything in my personal and professional career uh, that that I have today, including my family. Um my uh, my then classmate uh, Danielle, um, now wife, uh, and I met plebe year, and um, uh, was 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 truly love at first sight. Um, you know, we're we're just compatible on so many levels, and I think if you can if you can navigate the crucible of of going to a military academy um, together, uh, where you literally can't <laughs> talk to each other when you're outside. Um, uh, or 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 co- cohabitate a room without the door open. Um, I think you can get through a lot of life's trials, and and so um, first, you know that that experience was um, an unexpected delight in my you know in my my trajectory through West Point for for sure. Um, besides that, I think you know some some things were very uh, very much expected. The sort of um, the rigor, <clears throat> excuse me, the rigor, the um, sort of uh, packing many, many, many activities into into a you know uh, into an eighteen hour day, um, thriving in the uh, in the variety uh, of of things that you need to be um, uh, keeping keeping uh, up with, just sort of the 
the the cadence of, of of living life in a military academy was very much what I expected. Uh, what what I didn't expect was um, uh, that I would fall in love with uh, academics as much as I did. Um, I mean, I'd mm-hmm. always been a good student uh, in you know through through school. Um, I never really thought of myself as as getting um, excited about you know high level sort of academic research and these sorts of things. But um, there are some truly exceptional people that teach at the military academy. Um, you know, they not not to knock you know career academic researchers, but uh, you know these these folks are mid career army officers who go and do a master's degree and come to West Point to teach. They are there to teach for three years and. They take that very seriously, um, and they do a great job. So, the um, I had a number of um, and professors. I can still remember their names um, that mm-hmm. just kind of lit a fire in me in in uh, being kind of academically hungry, particularly around um, engineering and sciences and, and computer science. And I just, you know, frankly, I met a level of um, academic challenge that I had not experienced uh, to that point. You know. New York, New Jersey public school is is a, is a, is a great um, you know a great education and uh, but it's you know there's there's sort of uh, they have to serve a very diverse student population um, diverse in the sense of you know very um, uh, there, there's a wide range of things that people do out of out of high school ranging from going to technical school to going to top tier colleges and so there's right. uh, that variety creates an environment where they they can't cater to the specific you know, intellectual needs of, 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 of particular students. And, uh, but I, I met uh, a much more flexible environment at West Point where I was able to, I mean, I just remember taking 26, 27 credit hours. Cause I just was so excited about learning and, and expanding my aperture. I ended up double majoring in economics and math. Um, and, uh, well, you know, I, I really, I, I did pretty well. And, um, was, was sort of left with an interesting choice about uh, what to do. Um, the advice I was getting from a lot of career officers was like, look, you need to go out into the army, go be a lieutenant, go uh, be in charge of a platoon, um, start your career now because you're never going to recover from missing out on those years. On the other hand, I had some um, of the more sort of academically inclined professors saying, these guys are crazy. Um, go do a scholarship if you can get it. It's going to be a tremendous experience for you. The army will figure it out later, and um, you know you're 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 uh, you'll, you'll find ways of succeeding. Um, don't 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 be don't be afraid to be different. Right. Ultimately, yeah. I also okay. yeah I also had um, sort of a a, a pretty important per, uh, personal development, which was you know Danielle and I had been dating this entire time. Uh, Danielle is. Uh, certainly, the smarter of the two of us, and uh, managed to get herself a ticket to um, to medical school, which meant uh, we would not be, you know, stationed together after we graduated. Um, and she would, um, you know, she would uh, she'd be um, off at med school. So I thought, you know, the combination of following my heart, which said go do something challenging in academia and, and take advantage of the opportunity, and and the rest will fall into place, coupled with sort of being on the same you know, stage of life with, with Danielle, uh, while she was at school, me being at school, I, um, I ended up applying for some scholarships. I, I won a Rhodes scholarship and, um, you know, went packed off to, to Oxford after graduation to go do a PhD, um, which is uh, actually where, where, where you, uh, enter the story. <laughs> Funny right, enough. right. And, and, and that did require, I mean, 
I think while part of our audience, Josh, is certainly military veterans looking at careers in tech or or maybe already are, for, for many people, Josh, outside of the military, it might be hard to understand why someone with your academic success level and the opportunity to take a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford would think for one minute why that would set them back or not be what they should do. Could you maybe contextualize that a bit and, and then we'll jump into your um, your Oxford research that led sure. to the creation of Red Owl? Yeah. Um, it, it, when you explain it in a, in a, in a broader kind of public context, it seems insane. Um, but there's actually a corollary example, which may be a bit more tangible for folks. Uh, one of my Rhodes classmates, uh, is a tremendously talented gentleman by the name of Myron Roll. Um, who, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a huge football fan, but I understand that, uh, around our era, he was, he was quite a phenomenon, um, uh, down down in uh, down in Florida, and uh, he had the opportunity to uh, get drafted by the NFL. Uh, he had also won a Rhodes Scholarship, and there were um, pretty significant. I mean, I just remember being jarred in the same way that I was, you know, at the military academy, where people were telling him, "No, you're crazy. Don't go do this scholarship." What are you doing? Like you made it to the promised land, like go, go get drafted into the NFL. Now I'm not trying to equate getting commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States army with, uh, with getting drafted by the NFL, but the, the context in which Myron found himself, um, among people who, um, value that, that achievement of, 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 of joining the NFL and getting drafted, um, as a singular focus for one's life uh, is 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 corollary to the kind of environment that is instilled on you in uh, in a military academy where the the pinnacle of achievement you work very very hard to get commissioned as a second lieutenant and many would say that that time is the best time that you'll have in the military being able to be in charge of a platoon and going through that experience and so for those folks who are Thinking about a 35-year career in the military, culminating with a very senior, you know, general officer position, they're their mentor. They're, they, they have your best interests in mind, and they're saying, "Look, like you're putting that 35-year path at risk, as crazy as it might sound, by going off and doing this academic thing because you're going to miss this formative experience as a lieutenant." So. I know right. it's hard to wrap your brain around, but that that truly there's there's no malice in that advice. It truly is rooted sure. in trying to do what's best for you, supposing an army career is what you want. Thank you for, for contextualizing that, Josh. You, you, you ended up having a, a, a stellar career decade in the army prior to, to starting shift five. You also, while at Oxford, did fundamental research that led to the creation of a technology startup company. Uh, can, Please talk a, a, a bit about what, what that research was, what it was like being a army officer who was simultaneously at Oxford pursuing a Rhodes Scholarship, being a co-founder of a technology startup, and being long distance with your then girlfriend or fiance or soon thereafter wife. Yeah. And, and then we'll get into some of your assignments in the army. Uh, yeah, it was busy. Um, I, I would say 
I have three kids now, and I think I will just say having that experience uh, prepared me in some small measure for having you know three kids under six years old. Um, they're, they're, if the parents out there will will, will probably appreciate the analogy. Right. Um, so from a from an academic perspective, um, you know West Point is a wonderful institution. I I learned a tremendous amount there, and I felt you know really prepared to to go out and fight the world's fight. Uh, it is look it, as an institution, it's not geared towards generating PhD researchers, and so there's a level of I think there was an intermediate. <laughs> there was definitely an intermediate level that I skipped when I went and 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 started um, the PhD at at Oxford. Um, I, I frankly felt very overwhelmed that first, you know, first six to twelve months. Um, you know, there's a lot of imposter syndrome and 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 self doubt that can creep in if you're not um, if you're not uh, conscious about it. Um, I just worked really hard to to um, close the gap in 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 some of the fundamental educational experiences. Um, you know, I was doing a PhD in statistics, and I probably skipped maybe two years of like master's level work before, before, uh, before hmm. getting into that program. And, and so it was, it truly was just work though. Right. And, and the resources were there, um, for, for me to, to be able to remediate kind of that, that gap. Um, and, but I really enjoyed it because I mean, look, like you, you go from an environment like West Point where every minute of your day is accounted for from, you know, 6am until 12am uh, to Oxford, which is exactly unlike that. It is, um, you know, it is basically, hey, welcome. You have these resources. We'll see you in three to seven years when you have a thesis ready for us to uh, evaluate. <laughs> like that, that is truly the Oxford experience. And mm. so um, I found myself with a tremendous amount of time to remediate a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, kind of academic preparation deficiencies. And so um, you know, that was, that was a really, uh, exciting and, and if what a, a bit, um, you know, daunting experience, but what I found was, um, once I kind of applied that work ethic that I had from the military Academy, um, to the task of getting a thesis, uh, worthy of publication done, uh, I actually ended up having a lot of time on my hands, um, uh, after about <laughs> the first year, year and a half, which is when, uh, when I took some of the research that I'd been uh, been doing, and uh, it inspired this idea of um, taking communications data, uh, human communications data, and using that as a substrate for drawing inference about insider threat. And um, we now know this as you know uh, user entity behavior analytics, uh, but this was a pretty nascent field back you know 10, 15 years ago, uh, almost at this point. So um, I uh, I decided uh, to 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 start a, a company around this idea uh, called Red Owl, uh, which is you know where we met Rennie, uh, as you know we we sort of um, uh, were, were acquainted through a mutual uh, mutual acquaintance and. Um, uh, you know that was probably up until then the best experience of my life was was building uh, that company with you uh, and 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 uh, our other co-founders. Um, I mean, just the sort of idea of having um, something you want to see in the world, and then working to build a team around solving, you know, building that thing or solving that problem. Uh, that's an itch that 
entrepreneurs get that's only scratched by doing. And so, um, you know, balancing finishing the the, the dissertation with um, you know being in Baltimore quite a bit for uh, for the for the purposes of um, uh, of of, uh, of of growing Red Owl together, and then you know also uh, commuting uh, back and forth to New Jersey to see Danielle on a monthly basis was a lot. But I look back on those days very fondly. Um, you know, I I think it was probably the best year or two of my life until that point for sure. So. Um, you know, we we had um, learned a ton of lessons. Uh, you know that that I think carried forward through. You know, Rennie, what you're doing now as a venture capitalist, uh, as well as you know what I'm doing now as a as an entrepreneur um, at Shift Five. Um, that I, I think that was just such a formative experience for me, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for for the opportunity to to grow that. And we had a you know we had a successful exit there with with Force Point, which um, you know I think underscores the idea that. If you if you have something you want to see in the world and you um, you know you 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 have an idea and you you want to build a team around it and, and make a product there there are many definitions of success but um, you know if you work hard and um, and and you're you're willing to learn from your lessons you can you can see things through to success um, regardless of the tribulations that you you find yourself with that that is very well said Josh and the the those years between pursuing your PhD, co-founding and, and building a company and trying to spend as much time as, as, as possible with Danielle were, uh, I, I think that's, that's, a n- n- nicely said that it prepared you for three children <laughs> under six. Yes. Uh, so, so that, that, that's excellent. And, uh, and, you know, let, let, let's also thank, um, you know, our, our, our other founders there, you know, Guy, Guy Filippelli and, uh, and Les Craig, who, um, you know, p- patriots, military and intelligence veterans who've, who've gone on to to success. So um, that was a, 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 a special time. And uh, and as, as you said, nice to get it to 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 a good result and an incredible experience for a army officer at that early point in your career to yes. to be 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 part of that and, and learn all those lessons, which in turn have 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 set you up for your ability to scale shift five. Josh, before we turn to to Shift Five and, and everything you and the team is doing there, um, you, you spent a the the 2010s essentially a, at the forefront of of many um, important things that were going on in the U.S. military and and, and government as the impact of of, of cybersecurity, cyber attacks, the the nature of how we all communicate digitally. Um, became clear to to the world. Could, could you talk through some of the, the highlights of your assignments as an army officer during uh, during that decade? Yeah, for, for sure, Rennie. I, and I think I had my first brush up with uh, Army's Human Resources Command directly after um, graduating from, from Oxford with, with my PhD. Uh, they decided the best use for my newly found uh, skills was um, to send me to Ranger School in um, in Fort Benning, Georgia, um, which I will say was a wonderful experience, despite maybe the the um, lack of continuity with uh, with with my previous experiences and those that would follow after Ranger School. Um, but after uh, after that, um, uh, I the stars just kind of aligned. Um, 
the military was in a really unique time in its its history uh, back in 2012, 2013, where it was standing up a, a new branch um, uh, called the cyber branch. Uh, and the Air Force lamentably was a bit ahead of us on this. Um, and, um, you know, in realizing that the, the cyber domain, while we can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, uh, it is um, equally as important as land, sea, and air. Uh, and, and now space, um, because we have invited digital components into every aspect of our lives. And so the military was grappling with this idea that information technology is so embedded in the way that the military does business these days, um, you know, the, from command and control to all of these sorts of um, other uses of, of information technology. And uh, I wanted to be a part of it. You know, after the Red Owl experience of, of um, building a cybersecurity uh, re related product um, and realizing how important and a frontier this would be in our in our human existence for the rest of my lifetime, certainly, um, I I wanted to be part of something. Not to mention, there's an entrepreneurial feel to standing up a new branch and helping to define what it what it means and building a team. So I was I was yearning for that experience again. And largely, uh, largely got it. Um, you know, I was able. I was very fortunate to be able in the early days to spend some time uh, in tailored access operations, which is um, the National Security Agency's uh, elite sort of um, uh, uh, tool development organization, uh, where I learned. Um, I just got a world class education in systems programming, information security, um, from from frankly the folks that invented uh, th those fields. And then I um, had uh, through through a um, uh, one of my uh, bosses, uh, this this gentleman by the name of um, um, uh, uh, Joe Hartman, who um, was recently in, uh, in charge of the Cyber National Mission Forces, two star general, uh, put me uh, on a uh, quick reaction team to try to solve a big problem for him. Uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting my co-founders, uh, Mike Wiegand and James Carenti, through uh, Joe Hartman. Uh, and the three of us just fell in um, thick as thieves, uh, working on project after project together. Um, so these guys, I have to credit them, they expanded my thinking on what a digital component is. You know, I think with, with the sort of TAO experience, I had a very um, focused view on information security uh, being related to information technology, right? Uh, things like cell phones, laptops, um, you know, network gear, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and, and James and Mike um, had the insight that, you know, there are other digital components out there. Um, there was a Wired article that came out recently that the microcontroller, sort of this, the smallest computer, general purpose computer that, that, we, that we have, was not invented by Intel. Uh, it was invented by the United States Air Force for the F-14 Tomcat uh, back in 1970 mm. to keep it in flight, right? Mm. So just to give you a sense of like how tight the relationship is between these digital components and um, and, and fleet assets or military weapon systems. And so uh, Mike, James, and I went on this crusade to um, expose, number one, the fact that these things are fundamentally the, sort of what we call our um, – tell our grandparents is planes, trains, and tanks, the kinds of things that we focus on. Um, they are fundamentally digital assets, number one. That, you know, that, that, is, that is manifestly clear when you open the hood of one of these things or, or take a peek in, in some of the wiring, uh, wiring um, cabinets. Number two, uh, also showing that maybe while we thought about the 
physical uh, reliability and robustness of these things, uh, we had not given much thought to what if a witting adversary uh, tried to subvert this thing from a digital perspective, tried to, tried to, to launch a cyber attack against these assets. And the answer is we had never thought about that uh, when we were building these things. And so we're sitting on billions and billions of dollars worth of this military equipment that is fundamentally vulnerable to cyber attack. So, Josh, when you say we had never thought about these things more broadly than your now co-founders at Shift 5, James, Mike, and you, right. I, you, you mean – we, the royal we, yeah. <laughs> the royal, the, the whole, the yeah, whole, yeah, just the whole, a lot I mean, of people like had whole, not yet thought about these things. Nobody, the, nobody around the globe had, had really thought about this. Um, you know, we, we were seeing this narrative arc uh, in cybersecurity of, of going from sort of computers and, and uh, endpoints and antivirus and network intrusion detection and firewalls and anti-phishing and all these sorts of things on our IT infrastructure. Uh, we've seen a huge res- uh, um, uh, revolution, a renaissance in uh, IoT cybersecurity, so these sort of small devices that we plug onto IT networks that aren't full-blown computers, but they're computers, things like you know your telephones or your smart TVs or your building management systems. We've also seen a really uh, big explosion of M&A activity and venture capital investment into ICS and SCADA security, industrial control systems, things like your manufacturing power plants and, 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 and the like, your programmable logic controllers. Where the next frontier is and where Mike, James, and I have spent the latter parts of, 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 of our, our careers is in fleet assets. These are distinct from IoT devices, distinct from ICS and SCADA. This, these are the trillions of dollars of locomotives, maritime vessels, uh, aircraft that have are crammed with digital components. But we collectively as a cybersecurity community and as you know, more broadly the owners of these assets – have never thought about them uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. And the result is we're sitting on this massive latent risk, uh, which is the, the, the mission that Shift 5 is, is, is trying to answer the call to. Um, you know, the, sort of the inflection point for, for Mike James and I and when we decided to get out of uniform and go be venture-backed startup entrepreneurs – um, was uh, in 2018, the Government Accountability Office, which is you know a, a major office in in the U.S. government, um, mm-hmm. responsible for doing sort of auditing and 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 looking internally and, and uh, in a critical way at, at how the government's functioning, released a report uh, called the Cybersecurity of Weapon Systems. And you read this thing; it's unclassified, which you know we it featured a lot of the work that we had done. Um, but you read this thing and you're left with the impression that this is the biggest national security crisis of our time. That basically the idea that we could go to war uh, with an adversary and aircraft could fall out of the sky or tanks could stop dead in their tracks and turn into 70-ton paperweights or we could sink submarines. Um, you know, the, these these ideas are so terrifying to uh, to the military, and by extension, they should be for 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 the rest of you know civilian world because the these assets are constructed in the same way, whether it's a military aircraft or a civilian aircraft, they're all designed in the same way that is fundamentally vulnerable to cyber attack. Right. And, and, and Josh, just, so you are, the, the, this is, this is the 2010s and, and you are in various units within the army and, and, and the broader government where you, you found yourself working with your, your now co-founders. And what you're seeing is unlike the, uh, recent novel by Admiral retired Admiral Stavridis and, and Elliot Ackerman called 2034 that that supposes a future state where literally a 
plane is diverted and, and pretty much falls out of the sky um, and, and communications infrastructure is, is, is wiped out across an entire country, what, what you are learning firsthand as a young army officer is that is not necessarily 2034. This is 2016, 17, 18. That is possible, you know, as, as early as, 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 as now. And you're still in yep. uniform at this point. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, I will just say these attacks aren't theoretical. Um, you know, the, the DOD is, is, is under attack every day and, um, they're, they're not theoretical. These attacks are not theoretical. Um, I, and, and we've demonstrated time and time again to our customers at, you know, at shift five, uh, whether that's the DOD or it's, you know, a locomotive customer that, um, you know, just because these assets are unusual and maybe a little bit obscure, uh, doesn't mean that it isn't possible with a few thousand dollars worth of equipment to do some uh, truly devastating things to these to these systems. And right, what's worse? So, so you have now an environment where basically IT systems, by and large, if you're sort of doing uh, what you need to be doing from a modern cybersecurity hygiene perspective. It's pretty difficult to subvert an IT system. Um, you know, like an iPhone, for example, there, there are million dollar payouts, multi-million dollar payouts for you to be able to subvert an iPhone from, from like a text message or a browser session, right? Like there are entire people who like build their career, very lucrative careers on attacking iPhones or browsers or, or network gear. There's no mm -hmm. such corollary in in the context in which Shift Five operates um, these these sort of fleet assets. Uh, your your iPhone is a hundred times more secure than than the 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 um, the passenger locomotive that you take to to work every day, uh, which which is right. number pretty surprising to learn, but it, it becomes scary when you consider what the consequences are. So for an IT system, if if you get attacked, we've seen really significant effects. I don't want to minimize those, but you know you're generally uh, unable to, you know, um, uh, unable to conduct your business or you have embarrassing details that are released to the internet or, or things of, of that nature. When a cyber physical system gets attacked, uh, and, and you lose control over that asset, uh, people can die. Um, you know, we had an number of examples here. I mean, the colonial pipeline, um, hack again was on the it side, but it goes to show you that when there's a physical system attached to that IT system, uh, you can shut down supplies. I mean, we were unable to pump gas uh, on the Eastern seaboard uh, not too long right. ago uh, because of the colonial pipeline. The um, uh, the the JBS meatpacking plant uh, attack, you know, there were concerns that we were not going to be able to buy meat in the supermarket. We had an attack in Oldsmar, Florida, where a control system was um, – uh, was taken control of and an attacker tried to put 10,000 times the safe amount of lye into the drinking water. Uh, you know, these are, these are like really scary attacks. Um, and there are other examples which illuminate the sorts of things that could happen to these assets uh, if we don't protect them from a cybersecurity perspective. Um, the Boeing 737 MAX 8 issues come to mind. So uh, to give you a sense of the way we think about these systems – um, they are more or less full digital control these days, mo most of these assets. So you have a 
a collection of sensors, things like um, what is the pitch of the aircraft, how fast is it going, where is it in space and time with a GPS antenna, those sorts of things. Uh, and then you have actuators, the things that control the aircraft. So, you know, control the engine, um, control the control flaps on the surface, those sorts of things. Um, they all communicate over a totally unsecured bus. Uh, a, a, think of it like a chat room, basically. And so if you put mm -hmm. data onto that bus, it is fundamentally trusted. Uh, and the, 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 the aircraft or the, the locomotive or the, the maritime vessel will just take action based on that data. And we saw exactly that happen uh, in the 737 MAX 8 crashes. So you had a, a sensor uh, that was uh, submitting erroneous pitch data. The aircraft thought it was in a stall condition and the MCAS system kept pushing the nose down. And eventually, you know, uh, two, two, two aircraft uh, crashed because of this system. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that those were cyber attacks. And so as far as we know, they, they were not. But it illustrates just how sensitive these systems are to being subverted uh, and, and, and how uh, by putting, you know, small messages on a digital plane, on a, on a, on a, on a communications bus, you can cause you know, massive devastation. And so those are exactly the sorts of effects that we are trying to uh, prevent from happening because the, the consequences are just uh, – they, they couldn't be graver. Right. And, and so – you and your your will be co-founders are still in uniform working on on these matters firsthand what is the decision process then for the three of you at the time to say we've had a great run in the military we've had had a big impact let's build a solution for these major grave challenges that we're, we're seeing from the outside rather than staying in uniform. What, to talk us through what, when you all left the army and the beginnings of Shift 5. Yeah, it was a really tough time, honestly. Um, so we, you know, you you sort of see the narrative arc of 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 my career is paralleled by Mike and James. Like we really loved serving in the military. Um, there's 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 a satisfaction you get to putting a uniform on in, in, in the morning and knowing that you're like answering sort of a higher purpose. Um, I actually wrote an article about why I left uh, the military. It was called uh, Fish Out of Wa Water. And um, it was – it turned out to be a bit of a composite opinion uh, among junior to mid-career officers in technical fields like cyber um, explaining how – you know, echoing back to the advice I got not to go take a Rhodes Scholarship and and study at Oxford, there is a um, I don't want to use the word dogma because it implies sort of a lot of negativity, but there is a um, there is a very crystallized path for how you ought to think about your military career, and for folks that want to deviate off that path, um, there is certainly. Um, you know, there, there, there's certainly you're going to get advice that you're doing, you're, 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 you're throwing away the possibility of, of, of reaching the promised land of sort of making general officer and, and, and having increasing levels of impact. Um, for us, you know, we we really enjoyed managing and, and leading soldiers um, for sure. But what we found was that there was about to be this 10 year um, a ten-year period in which we would, you know, become field-grade officers and be very focused on sort of staff work and and uh, taken away from the 
the very technical, low-level leadership that we were doing up until that point. So from a professional development perspective, we were we were a bit um, misaligned uh, from from that path. But more importantly, what we what we found was that um, no one was coming to save us on on this on this issue of um, protecting the world's fleets from cyber attack. Um, the OEMs are driven by requirements that are you know generated by the by the government. They're not going to fix these issues um, certainly for the old systems, but. Uh, even for the new ones, unless uh, sort of we go through this very lengthy requirement process. And there's an obscurity around these fleet assets that is uh, creating a big moat between cybersecurity professionals that work on IT and even ICS systems and these very bespoke but prevalent uh, fleet assets. And so we looked at each other and we said, no one on the planet knows more about how to attack and defend these systems than the three of us. The military is not a place for building a product and delivering that product widespread across you know, all of these programs of record. We've done a, a lot of great work in our 10-year career. I think it's time to hang the uniform up, go raise some venture capital, and build the product to be, you know, be the change we want to see in the world. And so we just – we made the jump and um, it was the best decision we we ever made. Um, you know, we we – you know, we had this right. intuition. Um, we were really excited and passionate about this vision. And there's, there's, you know, there's a satisfaction you get for, for, for building a product and being an individual contributor. But I have to say, over the past six months, my satisfaction is derived from, uh, A, the tremendous amount of uh, interest and faith and confidence we're getting from the investment community about the bigness of this idea. And B, the level of talent that we've been able to recruit out of these really tremendously successful um, now late stage companies, but you know, uh, once startups like Tanium and Armis, uh, like poaching executives out of these places um, to to come and build Shift Five into what those places have become, uh, and because other people, other very impressive, seasoned, experienced people are seeing the same thing that the founding team is seeing. And that is, that is just the most gratifying thing um, for an entrepreneur, I think, is when, when, you, when you, you see something ahead of your time and then other, you, 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 you demonstrate uh, what, you're, what you're seeing and then build a coalition around, around that idea. Right, and, and, and Josh, I mean, you're, you're, it, it is clear that the, the, you wake up every day and are pursuing a big vision that that you and and Mike James and the the core team from the early days plus some of these more recent additions who, who are able to scale enable you all to to help scale this company more broadly it's 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 clear that uh that that this is you know a a, a part of you and uh and that that it um you know it it, it continues to 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 motivate you Every day, it's an uncommon path for someone to leave the military one day and literally the next day be an entrepreneur. You, you had some advance, some real advance um, living through this, having had the Red Owl experience, which is, I, I would say, extraordinarily unique amongst uh, amongst active duty military personnel. Um, as you all took that plunge to uh, 
to 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 depart the army and 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 start shift five. You know what what were those early days like a, a, a couple of years ago as as you got this off the ground as you got your early contracts and and maybe compare some of those early days and challenges to to where we are today as as we start to 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 wrap yeah, up. Yeah. There's a, you know, you, you hear this refrain comment about scaling with, with the company being a really challenging thing for a founder and that you really, frankly, you don't know whether you have um, the capacity, there's, feel, feel how you will about them, but the founder of Cross, CrossFit, this guy Greg Glassman says you, you fail at the margins of your experience, right? And you, you sort of, um, you don't know how you're going to perform in a context until you try it. And I feel like, um, growing a startup, uh, that's, that's having success is consistently exploring the margins of your experience and, um, seeing whether, uh, whether, you know, you, you can rise to the challenge. And so the narrative arc of, of shift five has been that over the past two years, um, Early on, uh, obviously, raising seed capital has a lot of challenges. It's um, you know a lot of it is is is, is storytelling, uh, not in a, in a bad way, but in a in a in a way where you're 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 illuminating um, the possibility of a, a viable market for the thing that you want to build. You're illuminating the credentials of the founding team. Uh, and you're trying to, you know, add smart value add investors to your team to help it become a self fulfilling prophecy that you've 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 been able to um, uh, to build something special. Uh, you know, your early days as a founder, your job is basically everything. Um, you know, I I wrote a lot of the systems software that's running on you know military aircraft today. Um, by virtue of the fact of there was no one else around to do it, right? I mean, you're just like, okay, uh, you know, Mike, I need you to go take these customer meetings. James, I need you to set up all this infrastructure and do all of these, you know, all of these um, uh, important operational uh, types of things for, for for this engagement. And I'm going to go, you know, build the thing that we need to go get collect money on this on this contract. Um, you're figuring out all these things in flight, and then over time, uh, if you're doing what you're supposed to, your job gets more and more focused. Um, and, and that's a good thing. That's a good sign. And so uh, I, I went from sort of individual contributor uh, in, in, in most contexts to managing individual contributors. So we started hiring people. Um, you know, we got a full stack engineer here. We got a marketing person here. We got a salesperson here. We hired a head of finance, you know. So you start managing those individual contributors. And now I'm at the point where I'm managing the managers. So I, you know, I've been able to recruit these C-level executives mm. from from some of these places to help me with managing uh, uh, the, the, the team, so that I can focus on raising capital and um, aligning strategy and measuring the company and going out and recruiting more people. Um, and that that has been a very exciting and challenging and dynamic evolution because once you feel like you have something figured out, that's when it's time for you to put someone in place of doing that thing and managing them. So, so you're constantly in this cycle of sort of like doing new things and, and, and exploring the margins of your, of your, of your ability. Right. That, that, that's well put about exploring the margins of your ability and the, the daily, weekly and, and, and monthly, um, something's new every day and knowing when 
to transition. Could could you can you maybe talk a, a bit about some of those transition points? You said when you were starting, it was you know the the three of you and a few others just doing everything, right? R- writing code, doing early sales, whatever it whatever it took. Um, a lot of storytelling to to raise financing. Then it was um, you know a, a, a small core team, and and as you mentioned. More recently, it was probably a combination of, of of showing the success you've already had, and also I would imagine some real storytelling too to paint the vision for this incredible C level team that you've been able to to recruit and and balancing when to recruit those people versus when to, as you said, ensure that you have resources and have the 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 capital in the business to to pursue your your broad yeah, vision. I mean, you put your finger on something that, I mean, I have, you know, a sample size of one really for this. So, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's anecdotal. Um, but from what I can gather talking to other entrepreneurs who've, who've made similar decisions around, you know, moving founders around into, into new roles and, and hiring external talent, um, there's, there, there's some, some common themes here. It's not, it's not rocket science. Um, although in practice it, it can be very, very hard. Uh, I think for us, it all started with, um, collecting great mentors. And so, you know, obviously I had, uh, the red owl, uh, uh, parliament, the, uh, the, the, um, alumni to, to lean on, uh, you and, and Les and guy to help, uh, guide us through some of these, um, you know, some of these tricky transitions, which are more art than science, uh, to be sure. Uh, we also, you know, added some tremendous, um, independent, uh, director, uh, level power, uh, to the board, which was, which was transformational. I mean, we, we, we brought, um, Larry Pryor, uh, on, onto the board who's, I mean, um, you, you just can't, that, that sort of experience is invaluable. Um, and, uh, I think having that, very, uh, active and empowered board, uh, to be there for uh, strategic engagement, but sort of operational distance has been one of the most transformational aspects for me as an entrepreneur, because I have a, a sounding board of extremely experienced, uh, vested people helping me through these, you know, navigate these tricky waters um, so that that's where it really all started. To be totally honest, is 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 having um, a tremendous board. And one of our mutual acquaintances, um, Trip Callen, uh, is is an angel investor who um, has spent so much. I feel like he's honestly like a part time chief strategy officer at this point. Um, he spent so much time with me, uh, you know, mentoring me and helping me through uh, helping me through these challenges. Um, and then, sort of internal dynamics thing. Look, it's it's hot. It's a tough conversation. With with um, as you're growing with people um, who maybe are um, bumping up against the margins of their experience in in a difficult way and need a more either a more focused role or uh, you know their their talents are suited in a different aspect uh, than than where we originally needed them um, and it's hard to sort of be putting in hundred hour weeks and then get success. And then the conversation is, you know, great job getting us here, but I think we're going to hire this person from here to take the job to the next level. Um, it, you know, the, at an intellectual level, you should receive that kind of, um, you know, that, that sort of transition with, 
with, you know, it's almost handing a baton off. Like you just ran a, you know, record setting 400, someone else is going to take the next leg, right? That's the sort of, that's the mentality, but right. we are, we are creatures of, of pride, you know, and, and, um, there's an aspect of like, I built this, uh, and now you're taking it away from me. So that, that's, you know, as a founder, probably among the most difficult conversations, um, uh, that, that you'll have when you, when you meet success, if, if you're being honest, if you, if you really are continually looking at your organization and saying it's the man before the, it's it's the mission before the man and we're going to put the right people in the right place at the right time uh to grow this thing uh into into a big uh a big a big um a big bet and look no one's immune from this i mean i even myself um you know we we had uh, we recently brought one of the truly most amazingly talented uh, people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, this, this, this gentleman by the name of Joe Lee uh, joined Shift 5 as our president um, a couple of months back. And, uh, you know, my, you know, I had this initial sort of gut reaction when we were talking about potentially bringing a president on and said, but I still have so much to build. I still have, I, I still, I, I got to figure marketing out. And I, I really, I really think there's a lot of work we need to do splitting engineering into product and field. And, you know, that was my initial reaction. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, if we could bring someone like Joe on, who's been the VP of product at these like amazing places, he's going to transform the business in ways that I can't even envision right now. This is clearly the right answer for the business. Like we should, you know, we should be over the moon if we could, if we could, we could get him to join. And we ended up, you know, making, uh, being able to compel him with, with the, the bigness of our vision and the importance of, of, of what we're doing to come on. And it has been the single most, um, transformational thing in my professional life is having Joe on board. Uh, and, and so to those, you know, to those founder CEOs out there who are, um, thinking about bringing on a really senior hire to help them grow the business and, and, and help them scale themselves. I will say that, of course, you know, selecting the right person is, is, is critical here, but it's the best decision I ever made and probably the best thing that's happened to Shift 5 this year. Right. Wow. That is, that is, that is saying a lot. And, and thank you for sharing that. You know, the, the, the challenges are real when you're, when you're, when you're founders, when you're early employees and feel that, that, ownership over over what you all have done to to get the company to it to a certain place and and thanks for also sharing your own personal version of that with uh you know e enabling yourself to focus on on what is most important by by bringing on some some very senior and 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 um and talented and experienced executives josh as as f final question here um and and thank you for sharing your time today while our audience is broader, uh, a lot of a lot of what we try to do at Frontline Founders is is bring bring the experience and 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 the hard won lessons and wisdom from military veterans who've become successful tech entrepreneurs to to those who who are still serving or, or recently transitioned. What what in your military career put put you ahead as as an entrepreneur to to be able to to have success as an entrepreneur and and what were some of the some of the things that you had to to work a little harder at um as as an entrepreneur um during during your journey josh really good question so in sort of reverse order um there are some obvious you know maybe obvious or superficial things that are um I don't want to say superficial because they're significant, but there, there are some things that the military just quite frankly doesn't prepare you for. Um, and, you know, when I think about military leadership, um, you 
you are responsible for, you know, literally the lives of the people that work for you. So in some sense, it is far more significant of a leadership burden than uh, what you'll experience as an entrepreneur. But you also, um, you, you, you step into a position that is well-defined uh, and in some sense is static. So if you're a platoon leader, that job has been more or less the same for hundreds of years, right? And uh, there are standard operating procedures. You have a lot of structure around you. Unless you're part of like a ranger regiment or something, you're not recruiting and, and, and sort of cultivating uh, the folks that are in your command. So in some ways, there are a lot of things that are constrained, like you know, recruiting and hiring and compensation and, and a whole spectrum of, of, of conversations that you don't have uh, when, you're, when you're in the military, but that you have to be very right. uh, adept at when you're, when you're running a business. So having a humility to realize that military leadership is incredibly valuable and in, in many ways more difficult than, than being an entrepreneur, but that there are aspects of, of leading as an entrepreneur that you just don't, you don't have uh, the experience with when you're, when you're in the military. Of course, there are business concepts that as an entrepreneur are critical. Raising money does not really have an analog in, 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 in the military, uh, nor does financial intelligence um, or, or, or in a lot of ways, you know, business operations um, or for that matter, having a customer and, and managing those, those, those relationships in, in the sale. So there's a lot there to learn. Uh, but there are, there are certainly sort of through lines um, that uh, – uh, that, that you'll find yourself pretty far ahead of, of um, other folks, you know, given your military experience. And I think um, first off, you know, a sense of, um, uh, you know, values driven, having a values driven organization. You know, we take, we take the sort of um, in the army, you know, we have the army values. We take those very seriously. And I think one of the things we don't talk about enough in an early stage company is culture, which I take to mean as the way that we act. It's the way that we act. We interact and behave with each other. And mm -hmm. I, um, we take those sorts of cultural, uh, cultural aspects very seriously in the military. And I think that is something that is natural for a military leader that you'll, you'll want to bring with you as an entrepreneur. Um, there's obviously a, a sense of work ethic and sort of mission before the man. Um, that will serve you very well uh, as an entrepreneur. You're going to sort of be facing challenges that seem insurmountable sometimes, um, just like a, a completely unreasonable amount of work coming from a wide variety of angles. And juggling all of that um, is something that'll be much more familiar to somebody who's deployed, you know, to 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 uh, to a combat zone right. um, and has learned to manage a level of stress where you're like, you know what? I'm not being attacked by mortars. I think I can handle, you know, these these 15 things that are on my to-do list today. So, you know, I, I think from from that perspective, you'll be very well prepared um, to to take the challenges that uh, you know running a company throws at you. Right, right. Josh, thank you for sharing your your journey from West Point, your military career, and 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 now as CEO and and co-founder of Shift Five with us today. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me, Rennie.